Welcome to the RSM Talk Big podcast, helping you invest well, understand money and achieve the best tax outcomes. Your hosts today are Andrew Sykes, Chris Oates and Young Han. Hello everyone and welcome to the RSM Talk Big podcast. My name is Andrew Sykes and I'm here in the studio today with my co-host Young Han. Hi everyone. And Chris Oates. G'day everyone. So inflation, interest rates, trying to save, it's a tough world out there. So I reckon today's a good day to start talking about how do we adapt and how do we invest in an inflationary environment. We're joined by a very special uh, guest today, David Burton-Jones. David is the Joint Chief Investment Officer at Aquitus Investment Partners. Um, So David's a long-term professional, uh, asset manager, consultant, and uh, oversees a portfolio worth $3 billion. That's a lot of dollars. That's a big responsibility. Um, David's going to bring us a, a bit of his insight. Welcome to our podcast, David. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So $3 billion, that's, that's a lot of money to be overseeing, mate. That's a, quite a responsibility. Well, thank you. The numbers, they are large and grow larger over time. Uh, so we're going to have a bit of a talk today on some of those inflationary and investment uh, and I know you, you, you deal with big business, and, but you, you invest for individuals, don't you? Primarily, that's who, who is the owner of those assets. Yeah. Our specific client is dealer groups, and dealer groups tend to own collections of financial planners, and the financial planners have books in turn of end clients. So, yes, I suppose there is a pretty straight line or conduit between me and the end investor. Excellent. So some of those investors, and I think it's what a lot of people want to know now, is how can and individuals and businesses generate profits during inflationary periods? Well, it's a very great question. It's the $64,000 question. <laughs> I usually tend to talk about what is the, the standard playbook for what works well in an inflationary environment. And I think it's incumbent to know that we've only had two of them in the past 60 years that don't tend to come across uh, or along very often. But it's the things that are at the very start of the value chain. So things like commodities, raw material inputs at the very start of the value chain that are usually fairly good hedges against the corrosive influence of inflation or assets that can very specifically adjust to inflation, that they have these adjustment mechanisms built into their contracts. So that's things like Treasury Inflation Protected Securities. They go by the acronym TIPS, which you might have heard of. And then after those two things, after commodities and TIPS, you've got companies, usually listed equities, but ones that have pricing power, ones that are are really dominant in their industry and can pass on those costs to the poor old end consumer like you and me, ultimately. And the flip side of those things that you want to gravitate toward, those things that you want to have exposure to, is the stuff you want to avoid. And iconically, that's longer dated fixed rate paying assets like bonds. Yes, so if you'd invested in all, all your investments in fixed, you know, sort of 10 year bonds two or three years ago, you'd be hurting at the moment. Yes, you, you really wouldn't. There's some fairly spectacular examples out there, I think, of 
Austrian bonds that have uh, durations or uh, tenors of about 100 years. That's, uh, that's a, a quick way to lose a lot of money in an inflationary environment when, when the original bond was offered with uh, expectations of inflation that were closer to 2% as opposed to 8%. Okay, but if you could see that same bond that had, say, a 6 or 7% coupon, that would be a great investment, wouldn't it? Uh, absolutely, yes. That would be assuredly helping you maintain your purchasing power in the current environment. So as an individual investor, um, you should be looking for those spikes up in rates to invest and lock it in, but not when it's lower rates, yeah? Yeah, I, th I think that's a very fair way to put things. We've had a tremendous repricing in yields. And as yields become more attractive on a forward-looking basis, you'd be wanting to tickle up your exposures to them in a multi-asset portfolio setting. And so for the first time in a long time, cash and shorter-dated fixed-income securities are offering good value. We often talk about shorter-dated floating-rate investment-grade credit where you can get running yields, perhaps not uh, coupons of six to seven percent uh, without stepping into the high yield sub-investment grade space. But for good quality credits, five to five and a half percent is quite easy to hit these days. And if you've got a balanced portfolio target total return of around six percent, you're very much, um, well, almost there, almost home and hosed in assets that, that don't have too much underlying risk relative to, say, equities. And in the times of high inflation, interest rates going up, um, the short dated bonds, it's important to have your, your strategy is really flexible. That's the other side of it. So one, we talk about finding in financial advice, the actual strategy being flexible, but your investments, you need to be able to move and adapt uh, to the changing environment. We look and interest rates have just had such a sharp rise that you're right, if you had money in cash and term deposits at really low rates, you would have had to wait. So but now you can get those better rates. So you're actually, by being flexible over that time, and you see in portfolios where you can have that active approach, David, um, that you're able to make the most as thing, as markets do move and the instability that does occur. And th there is a one thing that's quite often discussed at the moment is that, you know, RBA is increasing their interest rate because they want to manage or control inflation. What's your thoughts on that? Oh, it's long overdue. They were way behind the curve. They need to do more. Uh, so I am pleased to see that they are eventually now coming to the party and reacting appropriately in their efforts to try and combat inflation by putting the interest rates up, but too little, too late and not enough. And uh, ultimately that has proved to be a form of culpability for them and hence the RBA review and some of the personnel uh, and structural changes that will be inflicted on that uh, venerable institution. Yeah, it's a little, as a, a, an amateur and um, certainly a bystander in all of this, it's quite surprising to me that they couldn't foresee that if you gave everyone a bunch of money with COVID stimulus mm. and in an environment of 2% or sometimes even lower interest rates that we weren't going to have inflation. Yes, it's it's kind of extraordinary in that you think of all of the academic firepower, the institutional firepower that they have, the mathematical fanciness of the models that they use to try and predict, forecast, extrapolate out the economy, things like dynamic stochastic general equilibrium models, uh, the one that the RBA uses, it goes by the name of Martin, which I quite like, because you can kind of 
anthropomorphize it, I suppose, imbue it with human qualities, but maybe like other regular humans, it has proven to be very infallible, uh, to be very fallible, sorry, not infallible, uh, much to their chagrin. I agree with you on the name. It could be the best thing about it. I mean, if you said, if you met someone and they said, said, hi, my name's Martin and I'm an economist, you'd go, yeah, your parents probably got the name right. <laughs> I like but, it. But yeah, does... I, I think just a modicum of, of common sense was, was reasonably helpful here. And absolutely, with large parts of the economy shut in, keeping incomes whole through transfers, through policy, through fiscal policy, was really a uh, almost a, a guarantee that you would see inflationary pressures start to build over time. And so you had to be very quick. You had to be very responsive. We were talking about flexibility uh, earlier at the start of the, the conversation. That needed to be there, sticking dogmatically uh, to the, the three-year promise to keep rates low has only created a larger problem down the track. And so sometimes you are faced with two unpleasant choices but one is worse than the other, and life's all about relative preferences. Making choices under uncertainty and making difficult decisions is ostensibly what leadership and business leadership is meant to be all about. Yeah, and that uh, brings up a really good point. If you listen to our podcast, one of our consistent themes is that uh, creating wealth and wealth being defined as the ability to have decision-making power when you want it, not about having a big pot of money, but creating that wealth is over a long-term period. So taking you know, savings, invest cautiously, take it over a long-term period, is now one of those periods where you would say, okay, you know, if if... if we look at the rule of 72, which Chris has explained in one of his podcasts, divide um, 72 by your return tells you how long you need to double, double your money. Um, if we look at 6%, we're going to double our money in 12 years. Is now one of those times where you say, okay, I'll lock in my longer term fixed returns? For us, yes, at the margin. So bearing in mind that we, me specifically, Aquitus collectively, are a multi-asset portfolio manager, we've always got exposure to just about some of everything that you can imagine along the financial product spectrum across the multi-assets, across the sub-asset classes. And so for us, that starting premise is we've got a bit of everything. And then in the current environment, what do we gravitate toward more at the margin? What do we sell in order to finance that additional allocation towards whatever it might be. And in this instance, the whatever it might be is the thing that benefits ex ante looking forward. And absolutely, yes, we think that if we can lock in 6% interest rates uh, comparatively risk-free, absolutely. I think you made a, a comment there about the goal of building wealth so that you have optionality down the track so that you've got the ability to do well, within reason, what you want to do in life with your assets in retirement, well, 6% returns are going to go a very long way to satisfying the vast majority of those prospective obligations and ultimately desires. And I think it's the way you mentioned about the, the long term and being the flexible, being able to move in and out of assets. Uh, one thing we've looked at for a long time with our investment strategy is having that, I suppose, passive active so you approach where what we mean by that is passive basically 
tracks a general market, so like index investments, which we've talked about in the past, uh, and then but also having that component that you can buy and sell uh, investments depending on which sector is going to we think's going to do better or what companies. Um, and I think that's a big part of the strategy uh, that a lot of people do uh, put in place. Yes, that, that's right. And we, we tend to use the jargon of one strategic asset allocation profile, which is kind of analogous to that buy and hold, set and forget, let the assets run over very long periods of time, that'll compound your wealth, subject to a risk constraint like keeping the volatility proportionate to X, Y or Z, whatever it might be, depending on the underlying client's risky appetites. And then there's the dynamic asset allocation component. And exactly as you said, that is varying that configuration. So it's set up to be the best for right now, whatever the economic opportunities that are presenting themselves across financial markets. And some of that dynamic asset allocation distinction relative to strategic asset allocation can be conceptualized by that uh, passive component. We tend to use passive to mean low cost ease of implementation to get exposure to an underlying asset class, but without necessarily taking any particularly nuanced tilt uh, within it. So maybe just definitional concepts, but yes, directionally equivalent, I think. So did you have a lot of investors actually wanting to change how they invest because of this inflation? Uh, well, our, our clients, the dealer groups, uh, want us to make as much money as we possibly can, again, subject to those risk constraints and not, for example, taking a balanced portfolio where iconically it might be 60% uh, equities or risky assets and 40% bonds and cash defensive assets, for example, and not suddenly transmogrifying that into a portfolio that was 100% risk, for example. We've got products that are, are essentially fit for purpose that range from conservative and they will typically have lower real return targets, lower embedded risk constraints uh, embedded in them all the way through to balanced, all the way through to higher growth portfolios where really they are about maximizing return over a very long period of time, noting the volatility that can come with it where equities um, love them, uh, but that they can vary by upwards of 17% in either direction each year, every year around its mean quite consistently and sometimes by more so when you think of uh, a normal distribution, a three standard deviation event can mean that one stocks fall by 50% in a year. Now, fortunately, those periods are very rare across history. We've seen them during the GFC. We saw them most recently during the onset of COVID. But stocks for the long run is, is clearly a thing. And you can certainly see why, given that the underlying equity risk premia are, are typically so much higher then standard theory would suggest that there's very clearly a, a degree of risk aversion built into all of us, a dislike of uncertainty, a dislike of this idea that dividends can be a lot more volatile than coupons or distributions paid out of bond portfolios, for example. So, David, you're a, a professional uh, asset manager, fund manager, mm -hmm. really interested um, to get your opinion on um, if if we've got a younger person, say they're you know, starting off their working life, they're setting up a long-term savings plan, 
where should they be aiming in terms of investment returns over the long term? So, so really what I'm asking is, uh, as a professional, what you've seen in your career, what is a good sustainable rate of return that you can aim at? I think if you've got a very long time horizon and likely meaningful steady income that you are employed and that that's likely to remain the case for a goodly chunk of the decades ahead of you, I think that you should be taking more risk in your investment portfolio, counting on compounding to grow the capital over time. And I think that's, uh, what was it? Einstein's eighth wonder of the world, the uh, impacts of compounding on portfolios and simply turning down the noise, scarcely looking at one's superannuation portfolio over time and not being too worried about 10% drawdowns, for example, not letting that shake you out of your asset uh, allocation and suddenly taking a portfolio that was quite growthy and making it defensive and then never rotating back into growth assets when they reprice. Uh, I, I definitely think that the younger generation on the assumption that their health is good, their employment prospects are good and they have a long time horizon, they should be willing to embrace slightly more volatile portfolios and again, counting on that idea that volatility typically smoothens out over long periods of time. So yes, I, I think implicit in the premise of your question, uh, you would be looking towards returns anywhere between seven to 9% nominal for a high growth portfolio over long periods of time from a starting period like today, given where asset classes are trading. Yeah, and I think that'd be, I'd be happy with a long-term return somewhere in that range, mm. knowing as a long-term investor that compound interest is just going to work uh, year on year. on year. It's really uh, interesting. People ask me about this as an accountant, they ask me about the share market and my standard response is uh, that's, a, that's a place where other people make money. Um, if, if I buy in direct shares, it never seems to work out. What's the benefit of having uh, a fund manager manage it for you? As opposed to just simply allocating to the the uh, ASX 200, for example, within Australian equities, just going purely passive. What's the point of the active manager? Is that what you mean? Or no, uh, the point of the average investor who'll just pick a bunch of stocks that they uh, like and away yes. you go. I see what you mean. <laughs> yes, the the sad fact of the matter Exactly as you said, really, the, the share market is full of sharks like me who are here spending every second of every day with our powerful analytics and tools and resources trying to take that little bit of return away from you and give it to our clients. Uh, and so the typical retail investor, when they are building their own direct equities allocation, will often over-concentrate it. It won't be particularly well diversified. It'll often be in household names, whether or not those stocks have good forward-looking investment prospects. And again, often the consequence of investing in things that are very familiar to you is usually the idea that those stocks became familiar to you because they have done well and quite possibly therefore are either overvalued or at least in some way, shape or form expensive and thus have lower ex-ante forward-looking returns. So we, we do tend to find that the 
the retail client doing it on their own materially underperforms the professionals. Uh, and so unless you have an extraordinarily compelling reason to do it personally, one should absolutely leave it to the professionals. And that's uh, partnerships like Aquitus with RSM, for example. I think it's also people often, they're trying to time the market rather mm. than staying in the market. And having a, a you know fund manager is actually a secondary safeguard for you if you tend to stress about your portfolio mm. and then you know easy access to buy and sell. I think that's quite dangerous. <laughs> so. I, I think that's a really excellent point. I mean, you want, in that case, you want barriers to prevent yourself from reflexively responding to fear. And it is very easy to open up one's share trading account and hit the sell order as opposed to necessarily working their managed funds exposures out of the portfolio in concert with their financial advisor. So I think I think that's a great point that you make. And if you are a skittish individual, that's a really good observation to, to keep in mind about how you can improve your own discipline by making it just that little bit harder to, to unwind something that would, over the long run, be a good idea. And it's coming at it from a, an objective point of view. It's not your, when it's your money in your bank account, in your share trading account, mm. you become emotional with it. Yes. Whereas when you start using a fund manager, they're able to look at it with a, a set investment philosophy, stick to it. If you're going to buy something, there's a whole strategy behind whether you go into it or not. Yeah, and I also think it's an extraordinary amount of work. I'd much rather have someone else do it for me. And um, what's so if there are people that, you know, looking to engage a fund manager to manage their portfolio, what's kind of a starting point? Come and talk to a financial advisor. That's that one, as David sort of said. It's, yeah, but how, how much is kind of good enough to start a portfolio? Well, it's a matter of just... Starting, as we've mentioned before, starting with something. Mm. So it, you don't necessarily need to go, here's a big, big lump of money. Investing is for everyone. It's just on different scales. So somebody might have $100,000 or a million dollars, but the same person might have $1,000. But it's starting somewhere in that regular investment. And I couldn't agree with you more. If you want to have a million dollars in investable assets, you have to start with the first dollar. And so get started yep. and accumulate, take a long-term view. So there are people always wants to have a shortcut and get there faster, thinking about the margin loan. What's your view on that? Oh, it's risky. Um, but yeah, David's probably got more <laughs> more insight into that. Horror story? But again, <laughs> any individual strategy or tactic can be fine as long as it's part of a coherent whole that is holistic in its intent. So having exposure to margin loans or, for example, a geared Australian share portfolio is absolutely fine as a part of a portfolio. It's not an either or exclusion type event. But if one is taking on geared exposures, well, do they have any other offsetting or diversifying trades that can smoothen out the investment experience over time? 
while still producing a higher risk-adjusted return. So the higher risk-adjusted return has a special name. We call it the Sharpe Ratio, and it's really the holy grail of what we're trying to do or target in funds management. And the idea is that if you can combine imperfectly correlated assets, like stocks and bonds, for example, and a geared portfolio uh, might uh, take up some proportion of the equity sleeve in that scenario, you'll still find that over time, those asset classes working together will produce higher returns with lower units of risk. And that's ultimately what we're trying to do. So there's nothing wrong in and of itself with having a margin loan or having a geared approach within one's portfolio. It just depends what else is in there and is it working harmoniously together? And just on this, this conversation of uh, minimum starting balances or how much one needs or where should one get started, well, any amount is fine as long as it's your nest egg that you're trying to grow. So dollar amounts are not especially the concern here. There are very small amounts. There are very large balances. It, it doesn't matter as long as it's yours and you're trying to grow it uh, over time. But the returns to advice are, are truly enormous. There's been a whole bunch of studies on this one, but the, the one that I like, a bit like Martin, where the name just sticks in your mind, is the Crano study out of uh, retirement and superannuation products in Canada, in which they looked at what is the return to the value of advice. And it turned out to be about 3% per annum over time, which is extraordinary. We, we just talked about maybe a target total return for an equities portfolio of being between 7 to 9%. And here we're saying that the value of advice is anywhere between a third to, to 40 to 50% of that total target return just from going and seeing a financial planner who can help you avoid catastrophic mistakes. Um, I can think of my own estranged father. He's no longer with us and, and hasn't been for some time. But I do recall uh, that he uh, basically tried to manage his own wealth uh, himself. And during the global financial crises all those years ago, uh, sold most of his risky assets and then never went back in. And it did profoundly affect the, the lifestyle that he was able to enjoy in the years that he had left because of that financial decision and seeking professional assistance would have made an enormous difference. So you can extrapolate, I suppose, from, uh, from the personal in this instance to the broad in terms of its application. And that's a really amazing uh, number you've put forward. So if we went back to that rule of 72, mm. if you could get 4% on your own, you're going to double your money in 18 years. If you go seek some advice and get 7%, you're doubling your money in 10 years. Absolutely. So that compound interest effect. Uh, David, thank you very much for your time today. That's all we've got time for. Um, thank you, Young and Chris, for, for joining us today and, and everybody listening to the RSM Talk Big podcast. Hopefully you found that uh, very interesting. There is a lot on inflation at the moment and it's a, it is a, a, a big area. Uh, RSM has released their Think Big report. So in conjunction with Talk Big, we have the uh, uh, team out there that writes our reports. Uh, if you go to rsm.com.au, you can download the Think Big report on inflation and interest rate rises for more in-depth insights and strategies. 
Once again, thank you for joining in uh, on the RSM Talk Big podcast. Look forward to uh, talking with you on further topics. You can download us on your favourite and hopefully subscribe on your favourite podcast platform. And it'd be great if you could leave us a review as well. Thank you and talk with you next time. Talk Big. Create, save and protect with RSM.